1: Today on Something You Should Know, what having a brother or sister does to your character and personality. Then, deja vu, what is it? Have you had it?
0: Most people have had the experience. Now an interesting aspect regarding deja vu's incidents, the most common elicitor is uh, scenes, so places followed by conversations with
1: people. Also, how your dental health can affect your mental health and how emotions drive your actions and has driven everyone's actions throughout all of history.
2: The point is that emotions have a history and most history when it's done, is done mostly free from emotions. It's done as this event made that happen or that person did that and then this happened. But actually, all of that is seeped in emotions. People do things because of how they feel.
1: All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast.
3: Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers.
1: Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. I grew up in a family of five kids, four boys and a girl, and I'm the second oldest. And there's some interesting research about how siblings affect other siblings as they grow up. It turns out that having a brother is really good for girls. Women who grew up with a brother tend to end up more confident in social situations, especially with the opposite sex. Those sisters are also more likely to take on roles traditionally dominated by men and are a lot less intimidated by careers and hobbies that are stereotypically male. And if you've got a sister, well, consider yourself lucky. Researcher Tony Cassidy says that his studies have found that families with sisters have deeper bonds and better communication skills. And that is something you should know. There's a pretty good chance that you have experienced déjà vu. That feeling that you've been here before, or that you've said this before, or that You're experiencing something now that has already happened in the past. So what is that? Some say it's paranormal, or it's a clue to your psychic abilities, and others say that's nonsense. Anne Cleary is someone who studies déjà vu. She is a professor at Colorado State University, and she has a great TED Talk on this subject that you can see online. There's a link to it in the show notes. And she is author of a book called The Deja Vu Experience. Hi, Anne. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thanks. So you've been studying this phenomenon of deja vu. What do you think is going on? What is it that gives us that sense that I've done this before or I've been here before?
0: Well, the definition of deja vu is the experience of having experienced something before Well, simultaneously also feeling that that's impossible because this is the first time that you're experiencing it. From my perspective, what causes it is likely memory. It's likely that you have experienced something, uh, either this situation or something very much like it at some point in your past, and you have simply forgotten that prior experience. And so you're unable to recall the source of the familiarity that you're experiencing with it.
1: What is the history of déjà vu in the sense of, you know, when was it first identified? How long has it been studied?
0: So déjà vu uh, began to appear in literature in around the late 1800s or so, Uh Philosophers and thinkers began writing about it and speculating as to its cause. There's currently still some debate over when the phrase déjà vu first began appearing uh, in the literature and in intellectual circles. But it's clear that by about the mid 20th century or so, the phrase had caught on and that became the, the single use phrase in English for describing the experience itself.
1: Well, we use it in English, but it is a it is a French word. So why do we continue to use a French word?
0: It first started in France uh, among intellectuals and philosophers. I believe that the reason we're still using the French phrase in English is because there simply isn't a better term in English. And interestingly, uh, some colleagues and I have been examining, well, are there words in other languages for this same experience? And in some other languages, it's it's actually the French phrase as well. So I believe in Spanish, for example, uh, people also use the French phrase déjà vu. And it's an interesting question. Does every language have a phrase for this? Uh, because it's such an odd, unusual experience.
1: What do we know about the experience of déjà vu in terms of who's had it, when does it happen uh, in life and during the day and time of year? And are there any similarities or it just pops up whenever?
0: Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint when exactly it's going to occur for someone in daily life But most people have had the experience at some point or other. So according to survey research, about two-thirds of the population reports having had deja vu at some point in their life. Now, an interesting aspect and a complete mystery uh, regarding deja vu's incidence is that it tends to decrease with age. And so it peaks in young adulthood, the frequency with which people report experiencing it, that is. It peaks in around the early 20s or so and then starts to decline from there, uh, becoming lesser and lesser uh, as people grow older. Another interesting aspect is that if you look at survey research regarding what people feel prompts it when it does happen to them, it seems that the most common elicitor is uh, scenes. So places tend to be the most common elicitor of the experience, followed by conversations with people.
1: Does it normally happen in the morning, in the evening? It it doesn't matter?
0: Yeah, there, there have been some survey studies about that. I'm not sure I would make too much of it other than it tends to be correlated with fatigue, and so from that perspective, it's, it may have a, a slightly greater likelihood of occurring later in the day when people are more likely to be tired, uh, and also later in the week for some reason.
1: So here's the thing that, that I really don't understand about deja vu, because you had said that, you know, it's probably related to memory. It's it, 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 You're having an an experience of something that you've never experienced before, but seems like you have. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of experiences that I have experienced before. I don't get that magical feeling when I remember things I've experienced before and I'm experiencing them again. So there's something else going on. It isn't just a memory, even a memory that I haven't experienced for years. I can walk into an old house and go, oh, I've been here before. It's not deja vu because I know I've been there before. But when I have deja vu, it's a very kind of mystical, wow. So what's the difference?
0: Yes, and this is exactly why I am so interested in deja vu as a memory researcher, because I think it is providing us with a unique window into how our memory systems might operate. So as you describe, most of the time, our experiences are familiar to us, and we have experienced something related to the situation, but it doesn't elicit this very mysterious sensation of simultaneously feeling like it's intensely familiar, but yet that's impossible. And so the key question is, what is going on in those situations? And it, it seems as if it's likely that something in memory's normal operation is being disrupted or has gone awry in some way, and it's now drawing our attention to that. Uh, but uh, to, to really get at your question, this is something that we've been aiming to investigate in in our laboratory. And one of the key hypotheses that we have had for what might cause that very unique type of experience that is deja vu is when there's a juxtaposition between an intense sense of familiarity on the one hand, and yet a recognition of novelty or newness on the other hand. And so it may be that when you have this juxtaposition, uh, that that is what really leads to this strange sensation. And it may be that that juxtaposition doesn't happen very often. Usually things either are very obviously familiar and they're not novel, or they're very obviously new and they're not familiar. And it's when you have this juxtaposition of both at the same time that perhaps you have this strange, eerie sensation that we call deja vu.
1: So it's a feeling of, I've never been here before, but it seems like I've been here before versus, oh, I remember this. Yes. And the the experience of deja vu, I know you talk in your TED Talk that, that a lot of people report that not only do they experience something that they think they've experienced before that they f- don't remember having ever done that but that they also think what they know what's going to happen next.
0: Yes, this is one of the most interesting aspects of déjà vu from my perspective. So I've been studying déjà vu for over a decade now from the perspective that it is probably a window onto how our memory systems work. And in the process of studying it, I have come to the realization that for many, many people, déjà vu doesn't just feel like a strong sense of familiarity juxtaposed with newness. It doesn't just feel like a memory. Many, many people have the experience of feeling as if they know exactly what is going to happen next when they're in the midst of a déjà vu experience. And years ago, I was kind of dismissive about this as a scientist. I thought, oh, you know, that there can't possibly be anything to that. That must just be people's beliefs about what deja vu actually is and people's associating it with the paranormal. But enough people kept coming forward and contacting me or telling me their deja vu stories that with this element involved, this feeling of prediction or knowing what's happened, what's going to happen next, that I began to wonder if if there might be something to this and something that might be able to be studied scientifically. So years ago, uh, I came up with the hypothesis that perhaps there is a memory explanation for the feeling of prediction. That is, maybe uh, if it is the case that deja vu can be driven by an unrecalled memory for something very similar to the current situation, then perhaps that unrecalled memory could also lead a person to have a sense of knowing what's going to happen next based on how the situation happened in the past.
1: I'm not sure why, but you know what this kind of reminds me of? Like, if you ask somebody, what are the lyrics to a specific song? They'll often have trouble remembering the lyrics off the top of their head. But if you play the song, if they're kind of singing along with the song, the lyrics just come. They just, you know them, but you need that prompt.
0: It's interesting that you mention that um, because there is an auditory form of deja vu. The phrase for that is deja entendu. And we have actually used music in our lab to try to investigate that. And uh, what we did in that study was to try to create an auditory analog to the spatial type of scene similarity that I mentioned was to use what are called piano puzzlers. So uh, there's a musical composer named Bruce Adolph who uh, every week for a, a radio show produces what he calls a piano puzzler, which is a unique combination of the genre of a particular musician and some popular sort of nursery rhyme or pop song. He combines them in a unique way that has this tendency to elicit a feeling of familiarity. So when you hear a piano puzzler, very often it feels familiar and you can't pinpoint why, yet it's also recognizably new at the same time because it doesn't sound like a piece that you've exactly heard before. And so we've used these in the past, these piano puzzlers, to examine Deja-Anne And interestingly, over the years in some of our research, taking this approach to examining the feeling of deja entendu so the feeling of having heard something before, even though you're pretty sure this is also a new song that you've never exactly heard before, people also have feelings of prediction during deja entendu. So if we ask people um, if they feel like they can predict whether the next note upon stopping the musical piece is going to be high or low. People feel very strongly that they can make that prediction even when they can't. And when we ask people if they feel like they can predict whether the next sound is going to come from the left or from the right, uh, they feel very strongly when they have that sense of deja entendu for a musical piece. They feel very strongly that they can predict where the next song is, where the next note is going to come from. Is it going to be from the left or the right?
1: We're talking about Deja Vu, and my guest is Anne Cleary, who researches Deja Vu. She is a professor at Colorado State University and author of the book, The Deja Vu Experience. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill – that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin-D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear, use as directed.
3: This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. at TalkSpace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at TalkSpace.com.
1: So, Anne, I imagine the history of deja vu is f- filled with explanations of the paranormal, that, that this must mean all kinds of things and who knows what. What are some of the other non scientific explanations for deja vu that you find intriguing?
0: So there are a number of non-scientific explanations of deja vu that fall into the paranormal realm. And one of them concerns past lives. So one explanation uh, that has existed in the paranormal literature for probably over 100 years or so. Is that the explanation might be that when you have this sensation, it is because it's alerting you to a very similar experience that you lived through uh, in a past life. Now, I suspect that this is just a way that people have come up with for trying to explain uh, the bizarre experience that is deja vu. We have an inherent need to explain to ourselves uh, why we're experiencing certain things. And when, when we have a sensation like that, like deja vu, that's that's jarring and maybe even a little bit eerie or alarming, uh, it can be comforting to come up with an explanation to kind of explain it away. Another paranormal explanation that has come up in various literatures over the past 100 years is the idea that déjà vu is somehow a psychic phenomenon. And in fact, you'll see that explanation even today. If you were to type into a search engine, signs your psychic. Very often, uh, one of the factors that will come up in a list on a number of different websites is deja vu or the idea that you experience deja vu very often. That that may be a sign that you're psychic. And I suspect that one of the reasons why deja vu tends to be associated with, with this idea of being psychic or able to predict the future is its very association with the sense of prediction. So we've now been able to document in a scientific way that there actually is a subjective association. It's illusory, but there is a a subjective association between the sensation of deja vu and the sensation of being able to predict what's going to happen next.
1: Another question I wanted to ask is, so when you experience deja vu and you realize it's deja vu, is it kind of like when you're dreaming and you realize you're dreaming, you kind of pop out of it, you wake up? When, you, when you're in deja vu, does the same thing happen?
0: that's a very interesting question I haven't thought about that before but I can say that when I personally experience deja vu which is which is quite rare these days it seems to be a brief fleeting experience and so you know I as a memory researcher who studies deja vu I love having the experience and would like to be able to analyze it when it happens to me and I, I do feel as you describe that when it happens it's so brief and fleeting that uh, by the time I start to analyze it, it's gone. And maybe it's because I'm trying to analyze it now, it's gone. And I I can't analyze it in real time.
1: You mentioned that that most of the experiences that people have with deja vu are places. When you look at the experiences, are there any other common threads in terms of uh, people not being in them or in them? Uh, they're negative perceived as negative experiences or benign experiences or positive experiences or they remind you of positive is there any are there any common threads
0: the the most common seems to be places uh with followed by the next common elicitor of deja vu if you look across people's survey reports um conversations with people. So uh, uh, things that other people said. So when you're in the midst of a conversation, something someone is saying to you can be a common elicitor. Uh, and then followed by infrequency of people's uh, reports across survey studies uh, the, the feeling of you having said something to someone else before. So the feeling that you have said this exact thing before that you're saying right now in the midst of a conversation.
1: Yeah, I've had all of that, but you know what I've never really felt I've had is the, uh, where I felt like I knew what was going to happen next. I can't, I, I don't think I've ever, I can't remember a time when, when I felt like, I knew what was going to happen. That it was just a like a fleeting. I've been here before. I've done this before. I've said this before, and then it's gone.
0: And I I share your experience. I I don't think that I have ever had the feeling of prediction before myself. And and like you, for me, it's very fleeting. Uh, and I kind of wish I could have that experience so I could try to analyze it, but I don't think that I ever have. I hear it from many, many people, though, which is what has piqued my interest in in trying to study it. It, it definitely happens to a lot of people.
1: How would you categorize, I mean, is this a flaw in the brain? Is this just a, a like a misfire? Is this just, a, is there any sense of what causes it?
0: So I think that for most people, what probably causes deja vu is is an environmental circumstance where something in the environment is highly similar to something that you've experienced in your past, and you're failing to recall the source of that familiarity, but yet at the same time, you're also noticing the newness of the situation that you're in, and that it's probably that rare occurrence in the environment around you of newness and oldness, which probably doesn't happen very often. And so it causes this sort of brief hang up of, wait, is this new? Is this old? What is driving this? And it it captures your attention and prompts you to really try to search your memory. I think what most of us do when we're in the midst of that type of experience is search our memory. We start looking in our memory for what's relevant here. Is there something that this is reminding me of? Why is this feeling so familiar And so I think for for most people, it's this rare environmental situation that's eliciting it. And it's probably just indicating the normal operation of of our memories. There are some cases, though, where it really can be indicative of a glitch uh, in the system, if you will. So very frequent deja vu can be an indicator of certain types of seizure activity. And that has been known in the medical community for some time now. So if, if you're experiencing deja vu, say, four times a week, or maybe even more than that, there are people who will experience deja vu several times a day. If it's happening that often, it could be an indication that there are some minor seizures taking place in the brain.
1: So why do you study it? What's the hope? What's the, the potential outcome of understanding deja vu better?
0: So I think that if we understood deja vu better, it would give us a good glimpse into more fully understanding human memory as a whole. So I, I suspect that when deja vu happens, it's, it's, it's providing us this window into how our cognitive processes are working in a way that they're probably usually working under the surface. So you had mentioned earlier that in most situations, things are familiar and yet we don't have this striking sensation of deja vu. One hypothesis that I have is that Perhaps familiarity detection, this ability of our minds to process whether something's familiar versus novel, is usually something that's just rapidly occurring sort of underneath the surface, and it's not really grabbing our attention.
1: Do people in all cultures report déjà vu?
0: That is a big question that I currently have. And in fact, I have been collaborating with some colleagues to try to answer that question because it's unknown. Uh, I can say that there are a number of research papers in different cultures and languages on the topic of deja vu. Uh, And so it's not limited to, say, English-speaking or French-speaking Western types of cultures. When I was visiting some colleagues in China several years ago, I began speaking about some of my research on deja vu and asking if these colleagues were familiar with what I was talking about. And they began arguing with one another in Mandarin about what the appropriate term would be. Uh, And so they all knew what I was talking about, uh, but it wasn't clear that there was a single term that, that would be used in Mandarin to describe the experience. So, I think there's reason to suspect that it may be a culturally universal experience, but there has not been a good research study yet that has fully explored that.
1: Well, I have always liked that experience of deja vu. And I know that there will always be people like you who, who you know, try to s- explain it scientifically and understand what it is from a scientific point of view. But I like the magical and mystical sense that I have of deja vu, and I I think most people do. Anne Cleary has been my guest. She's a professor at Colorado State University. She researches deja vu, and she is author of the book, The Deja Vu Experience. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Anne. Thanks,
0: Mike. This was fun.
1: Something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. We all like to think that our actions and our decisions are all well thought out and reasonable, at least most of the time. But truly, so much of what we do is driven by our emotions. It is true now, it has been true throughout history, that what we do and what other people do, we do because of how we feel. And that turns out to be a rather important and fascinating part of who we are, according to Richard Firth Godby here. Richard is one of the world's leading experts on emotions, particularly the emotion of disgust. And he is author of a book called A Human History of Emotion how the way we feel built the world we know. Richard, so explain why this is such an important topic, the the history of emotions and how they drive our actions.
2: The point is that uh, emotions have a history, and uh, most history, when it's done, it's done mostly free from emotions. It's done as this event made that happen, or that person did that, and then this happened. But actually, all of that is seeped in emotions. People do things because of how they feel. And there is a whole field called the history of emotions that studies this, of which I am part.
1: I love that when you think about that f- sentence, that people do things because of their emotions. That, that When you think about that, I mean, that is so true, and yet it's such a stupid reason to do things much of the time.
2: It is, but there have been studies that suggest you can't make a decision without feelings, that feelings are very important. This idea that there is a thing called feelings or emotions, a thing called reason, and they are separate, isn't really real. We do something, we sit where we sit on the bus because we enjoy sitting in that position. We Everything is feeling at some level.
1: That's really interesting when you think about it because so so much of everything we do is driven by feelings, and yet we like to think that we're very sensible, reasonable people. And... And that we're making decisions in a very objective way, and we're not.
2: The thing is, though, it doesn't mean that the decision's wrong. There's this idea if you make an emotional decision, it's wrong. Usually, the emotion is what teaches you it's right. When you do something, when you're younger and things go well, you have a pleasant sensation because things go well or because your parents said, do that, and you weren't punished for it. So you go the right way. Um, It doesn't mean you're making a bad decision because you're using your feelings for it.
1: How people feel, the emotions mm-hmm. that people hold inside, it changes, yeah. right, over the years. I mean, the, the way that I'm feeling now and the things I like and the things that I feel are not the same things that somebody, you know, 10,000 years ago felt.
2: Absolutely. Emotions do change over time. Some emotions are unrecognizable today. Even other cultures now have some emotions that Westerners wouldn't recognize but um like what even if they th- even if they think they do uh, there's a German emotion called Ecker which is often translated as disgust. that's what it is but it isn't really. It's slightly different. It's not so much about feeling nauseous. it's more about avoiding harm it's more about not having something that overwhelms you that's too much which kind of sounds like disgust, but on the other hand, there's no eeeh or you involved in echo. So the translation isn't quite right. And most cultures have something like that.
1: So the story you tell about the Crusades, which we all learned about in school, and, and how emotions played a role in that is is really interesting. So talk about the Crusades.
2: Why did people go on the Crusades? For the longest time... Nobody had any idea. It was the idea it was a religious pilgrimage. Well, maybe it was the idea that people wanted to invade somewhere and get the land, maybe. But one of the driving forces behind the Crusades, bizarre as it sounds, was love. And it was a love for the Holy Land, a love for their religion, a love for their belief system, and a need to express that love with terrible violence, sadly. The took the people who are they were supposed they thought they were defending, who were fellow Christians. And they said, we love that they're fellow Christians. We need to go and help them or we need to defend them. Or the whole process was pushed by love. And when Pope Urban, who made the first speech that kicked off what is often called the First Crusade, he peppered his speech with phrases about charity and love and loving your fellow man. And it's all throughout it. He doesn't really talk about attacking and and invading at all. He talks about, let's go and do this act of love. And so that decision, that strange decision, seems to have been a very emotional one.
1: Since you are considered an expert on the emotion of disgust, uh, talk about disgust and why that's an important emotion.
2: Disgust is fairly a recent idea in the West, as we understand it now. If you go back, we can go back right to the old Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible, when it was translated into Latin, they came up with this word, abomination. And everything that you did that offended God was an abomination, no matter what it was. It could be using slightly dodgy weights and measures, or it could be murdering someone. All these things are abominations. But even then, there was abomination, which was very religious, and then there were other things like aversion, which wasn't very religious, similar thing, you're trying to avoid something that might harm you, like bad food or getting punched. Abomination is the kind of thing they felt for witches, because they were sinful and bad. And then, around the middle of the 17th century, some taste theorists needed a concept that was the opposite of taste, and there was this old word that had been lurking around disgust sort of borrowed from the Italians and the French that meant bad taste. And so they start to use disgust to describe things that were done in bad taste morally and aesthetically, if you like. Um, and it caught on. It became this new thing that was about anything yucky and horrid and any action that was immoral over the line, that kind of thing. So, over that discusses an example of something that deep down inside going at rotten fruit is probably evolved almost certainly an evolved response to stop us getting disease but how we understand it has changed over time several times just in English
1: throughout the history of emotions are there any emotions that have, more or less change sides where once a good emotion is now a bad emotion or a bad emotion is now considered a good emotion. Anything like that?
2: Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher, was one of the first people to really champion the idea that if something felt bad, it was bad. And if something felt good, it was good. Before him, the idea was that an emotion was judged on what it did. So if you felt fear because you're about to fall off a cliff, then fear is a good emotion. You know, it stops you falling off the cliff. It's a positive. Um if you felt happy because you just stolen something, then that happiness was bad because you shouldn't feel happy for stealing something. So that itself has changed. As for an emotion that's changed, probably desire, desire for goods, for worldly goods, was for the longest time and still is in some places, a big no. No, no, no. You do not desire things. A lot of religions are based on the idea that you suppress your desires for things. But now desire for things is kind of what makes the world go round. Without desire for goods, we wouldn't have capitalism. So that is now seen as much more of a positive thing than it ever was.
1: My sense is that we focus a lot more today on emotions than in the past. But As you look at the history of emotions, where do you see us today? How do we, compared to the past, how do we handle emotions differently?
2: There's this thing that psychologists are starting to call toxic happiness. And it's the idea that if you're not happy all the time, there's something wrong. And we can use history in looking at how other ways of feeling have been understood to say, actually, that's not the case sometimes it's okay to be down. In fact, it's a good thing to be down sometimes. Sometimes it's okay to feel sad. Sometimes it's okay to feel angry. Sometimes it's great to be happy. Sometimes happiness isn't appropriate. You might want to think about that. And history is a great way to see that perceptions of feelings change over time and that we are in a little pocket of this is how we're supposed to feel now. Uh, What's known as an emotional regime, which is where you have rules that you're supposed to follow for how you express and feel your emotions. When I think
1: about this, and obviously I'm, I'm certainly no expert, but but my sense is that, as you said, we live in, you know, where everything's emotional now. Everybody's offended mm. by every little thing and everything, mm. everybody's so touchy and you can't say this and you can't say that because you might offend somebody. And that it wasn't that long ago, and and maybe it was also a long time ago, or pe- that none of this w- was even a, a discussed. That, you know, if your feelings got hurt,
2: too bad. Yeah, I mean, when I was young, there was the old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Um, and these days, it seems that words can hurt you, worse than any sticks and stones can. It's part of this difference of perception of of how important feelings are that we've got now. There's a colleague of mine who believes that it's really, really started post 9-11. It began before that because you had things like go back to Star Trek. They had an emotion sensing counselor on the bridge of the enterprise, which is a clue that emotions were already starting to become important in culture. But 9-11 really, really brought it home. People start to think about how they feel and what feelings matter.
1: It does seem, though, when you look back throughout history, and, and maybe this is partly because of the way history is portrayed in films and, and in the books that, uh, that talk about history, that people were more stoic, that, that, that they sucked it up, that, that, that they, they didn't wear their emotions on their sleeve, that they really, emotions were secondary.
2: Yeah, there's also been times of great emotional upheaval. The early modern period, from, let's say, 1500 to seventeen, eighteen hundred. 1800, uh, so many things changed in the world. Uh, America was was discovered. Suddenly people realised that um, there was half of a planet that they didn't know about. Um, the Ottomans invaded and took over Constantinople, which meant suddenly goods were harder to come by and, and prices went up. New diseases appeared. Everything that Basically, the Book of Revelation said was going to happen, seemed to be happening. So that period in history was really marked by an overriding fear. Everybody was frightened of everything, terrified of their own shit. So that was quite an emotional period as well. That's partly why things like the witch crazes happened and endless wars and revolutions started. But it also got people... Thinking about things and thinking about feelings and people like Thomas Hobbes saying, you know, feelings are why we have disagreements. We need people to make decisions at the end of this rather than everybody just killing each other all the time. Which led to things like the Enlightenment and democracy and that sort of thing. Because if you think about it, democracy is a form of government in which people actually care what other people feel. But, yeah, you have periods in history when areas and people are really emotional and really in tune with feelings. And right now it's kind of a sensitivity about identity, about who we are and what we are and allowing that to run free rather than judging it and becoming quite offended when it is, I think. We almost live in an offense age rather than a fear age.
1: Talk about, because I I find this really interesting, this idea of synthetic emotions, that having emotions for things as opposed to people or animals or whatever.
2: It's known as effective computing. And there's a lot of people trying to make machines feel things um, and recognize emotions. And they're not doing a brilliant job, to be honest, because it's a very difficult thing to do. And it's getting, it's getting there. But it's things like uh, having artificial counselors So if somebody is suffering from depression, they could go to their Alexa and say, can you help? And there's an artificial counselor that could help them feel better by recognizing the emotions in their voice and reacting appropriately and speaking. And also just robots that have feelings, which is kind of terrifying. But people are working on it. The idea of having a robot that can get angry and sad and amused.
1: How far have they gotten on that?
2: They have got to the point where you can have an online artificial counsellor and people don't know in tests. They don't know that they are speaking to an, artificial, an artificially feeling, an artificially intelligent counsellor. Not in person. The voices aren't good enough yet. But with typing, if they have a real counsellor and an artificial one, it's almost impossible for people to know the difference. So that's where they've got in that. Uh, recognizing emotions in people, they don't do very well to be honest. They they keep trying. There's also some pets that are so lifelike in their responses, these robot pets, that people who have been demoing them have refused to switch them off.
1: Wait, wait, these are robot pets that people w- get so attached to that they, they really think, or they really interact as if they're real pets.
2: They do all the things you would think a dog or a cat would do. They come and greet you. They snuggle up to you. They go off on their own sometimes. All these things.
1: But it's interesting that you say they don't turn it off, and they clearly are forming some sort of emotional attachment to what is essentially a thing that 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 has no real feeling, has no soul, has nothing.
2: There's a concept within the field of uh, emotion research called essences, which is basically the idea that we attribute essences to objects. Uh, children do it all the time with their favorite teddy bears and things and their favorite dolls. They'll say, they'll treat it as if it's real. They'll get very upset when it's not with them. If you try and take it away, they'll act as if it is a person being taken away. And that we attribute that we do that with animals as well. And people are doing it with these objects too. We do it with our favorite things to be quite honest. Some of us do it with cars or have done in the past. Yeah. I have a
1: a car that I've had for, you know, almost 20 years that it's time to get rid of. And I feel bad about it. Like I'm like, I'm going to have to say goodbye to an old friend.
2: I, I had a car. I had a Toyota RAV4, very, very old car. It just kept on going. Nothing would, Nothing would phase it. Then one day, 20-odd years into its life, it stopped working. And I had to sell it um, to someone who wanted to take it away and turn it into an off-roader. And I actually cried when I sold it, and it's just a car. (laughs) So this idea of essence is we give things life, give things reality.
1: Since we've been talking about this whole idea of how our actions and our decisions are driven by our feelings, I would imagine that when our feelings get hurt— that that can also drive decisions and actions. So is is there a good example in history of how hurt feelings uh, have really changed the game?
2: Sometimes hurt feelings can change everything. In the late 19th century, Japan had, was just coming to the end of a long period when it closed all its borders to the rest of the world. There was a small colony a Dutch colony in Nagasaki where they did a bit of trading. But other than that, it was actually illegal to study foreign ways and people got in trouble for it. And then one day, a fleet of American warships turned up. They had larger cannons than the Japanese could believe existed. And they said, we would like to trade with you because we know you've got some things we want. And by like, we mean we're going to whether you like it or not, because our cannons are bigger than yours. And this triggered a backlash in, in Japan based on the old samurai ideas of shame and the idea of being shamed. And that shame at being so far behind the rest of the world kind of gave Japan a bit of a kickstart. They used it to press on, to become bigger, to become ultimately who they are now, one of the richest countries in the world. So that was a case of hurt feelings being used as an engine for change
1: you know what i'd be really curious to know you were talking about people getting so attached to their artificial pets like so what happens when when the artificial pet actually breaks and can't be fixed like when people mourn their artificial pet is it like mourning a real pet
2: yeah and i sometimes wonder because no real studies have been done about this because it's very new i'm I'm curious about that because I have my suspicions that it would be very similar Um, because I don't think our brains know the difference. We don't know the difference between a cat and a a real cat and a fake cat that appears to be a real cat. Um, All we know is it's a pet and it seems to, it does things that seem to express emotions to us. It seems that they seem to love us.
1: Well, it seems to me if your robot pet dies you just change the battery (laughs) or you take it to the artificial pet repair store and they fix it or you get another one. It's going to be the same. I I don't know. It just seems very, there's the
2: thing. If you get another one, if the essence is with the one that you had is another one, just like getting a new cat when your cat passes away.
1: Yeah. And, and while that, sounds kind of crazy and silly it really illustrates how important emotions are and as you've been discussing how important they have been throughout history and how important they are to pay attention to richard firth Godby here has been my guest he's one of the world's leading experts on emotions and he is author of a book called a human history of emotion how the way we feel built the world we know and there is a link to his book at amazon in the show notes Thanks, Richard. Thanks for being here today.
2: No problem at all. It was great. Thanks.
1: It turns out flossing your teeth isn't just good for your dental health. It's also good for your mental health. A group of dentists and psychiatrists teamed up on a study and determined that our oral health is directly connected to our cognitive health. It seems that gum inflammation can contribute to brain inflammation, which impairs mental function and increases the odds of developing Alzheimer's disease later in life. Brushing and flossing for at least two minutes each day is the best defense to ward off periodontal disease, gingivitis, and inflammation. And that can keep your brain sharp. And that is something you should know. Your rating and review of this podcast would be most appreciated on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and a five-star rating is really appreciated. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.